put them in the chat box in Zoom. You can text me at that number. Sorry, it's like sometimes mirrored and sometimes not. Um, and I think that's about it. Uh, I will tell you this, Theology on Tap has, a, I say this all the time because I pride myself in it and we do. We have a wide diversity of voices. So we've got like Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and non-denominational and people on both ends and all the way in between the spectrum of conservative to liberal theology, politics, all these things. Um, and so we love to disagree about these things, but charitably and um, kindly and with gentleness and respect. So I think you will really enjoy it tonight because we're going to disagree, but we're going to disagree in a, in a really nice way. So um, I think that's all the preliminary stuff I need to get out of the way. I'm going to go ahead and Gerhard, ask you to to go. Okay, uh, coming through all right? Sounds good. Great, then I will read my prepared uh, thing and then we can get going. Perfect. <clears throat> Socialism is, in essence, the idea that wealth and economic power should not be allowed to be concentrated into a small class of people. Rather, socialists believe that we should intentionally structure our societies so that all people share relatively equally in the wealth that we produce. This means concretely that we believe that a probably democratically elected state, not a few rich individuals, should make the economic decisions that affect our lives. Let me explain what this means though, and I'll do so by explaining what socialists mean when we say that private property should be abolished. Um, socialism does not actually mean the abolition of private property, at least in the sense that it sounds like that means to a modern American. In America, the phrase private property has a very broad definition. Anything you own is your private property, and it usually refers to things that you personally use in your non-work life. Things like your house, your car, your TV, your couch, and your toothbrush. Socialists don't and haven't ever wanted to take those things away from you. That's simply a misunderstanding of socialism, perpetuated by people who fundamentally don't understand it. When socialists talk about the abolition of private property, which is really at the heart of our um, political and economic system, what we mean by private property has a much narrower definition than the definition you might be accustomed to hearing. Socialists traditionally make a distinction between private property and personal property. Everything I listed above, everything that you may have been scared by in the past that capitalists have told you that the angry socialists are coming to take away your toothbrush or your house, uh, all of those things fall into the category of personal property. Socialists think it's fine. It's good to own toothbrushes and cars. And that's why people have always owned toothbrushes and cars in communist countries, a fact that seems to be often forgotten, probably intentionally. Socialists do want to abolish what we call private property, though. Private property, in a socialist definition, refers to what we call the means of production, more technical language, that, but this is hundreds of years of theory, not in me, but in sort of socialist dialogue. That is the things you use to make money. Socialists say that the sources of revenue for a community shouldn't be owned by exclusively one person within the community, but should be owned by the whole community at large. So more specifically, when we say abolish private property, we're saying that it is not right for one person to own the factory or the bar or the business, and therefore not labor, but profit off of the factory workers labor. A, co a concrete example might make this even clearer. Though. Let's say you work at a bar. Uh, 
theoretically, this uh, was originally going to be in a bar, so maybe that would have worked better then. We uh, like but bars. You, fine. Yeah, we like bars, apparently. There's uh, beer on the logo. You <laughs> and one or two employees work together at a time. You're a bartender. They maybe are the cook. And most nights, the owner of the bar is probably there as well. Usually you and the other employees are working most of the night. The bar manager is there judging your performance. And for about half the night, the bar's owner is sitting at the bar, getting drunk, talking with his friends, hitting on the women who come to order drinks. You're working, your friends are working, the bar manager is frantic, but the owner is mostly just sitting there relaxing. But how do you think the income is divided in a situation like this? I could give you the details and I did go do the research to figure out the average uh, income of bars and whatnot. But the short answer is that you probably make around $2,000 a month for doing all the work and your boss makes around $5,000 for not doing any of the work that you did. He didn't pour the drinks, you did. Why does he get $5,000 and you get $2,000? You could extend that analysis out to just about every job. You and I work for a living. We teach students, we build houses, we train dogs, we pour drinks, and all of us have an employer who skims money off of what we produce. Universities push bigger and bigger classroom sizes so that smaller numbers of workers think professors, custodians, adjuncts, can extract more tuition from more students without having to pay more professors. And honestly, this is forced on universities by the broader capitalist system we live in. This is not a choice that they engage in, really. The CEOs of construction companies live in mansions just for telling their underpaid labor forces where and what to build. Owners make far more money, do far less work, and tell you they're doing you a favor by giving you a job, that is, making you work. A job where you produce a dollar worth of value, but are only given a dime as payment, so that your boss can go on a fancy vacation you could never afford with those, no uh, uh, sorry, with those other 90 cents that you produced. In the above examples, the bar, the businesses, all of these are the means of production. A bar is a means of production because as a business, it produces more money. It is the means, the way to get to production, to get to goods that we might sell. Socialists say that the employer-employee relationship that I described above, where the boss makes a dollar for no work and you make a dime for a lot of work, is unjust. Businesses, the means of production, should not be owned by a small number of private individuals who make their money off the rest of our labor. And so socialists want to abolish the private property of privately held businesses. We say that workers shouldn't be paid starvation wages just so business owners can get rich. If a bar makes $5,000 worth of profit after expenses and salaries, that money should be split by all the workers instead of just going into one person's pocket, especially since owners do so much less work than workers. I mean, just listen to the names. You have the earners and you have, or the owners and you have the workers. Who's doing the work? Do you think the average coffee shop owner deserves to make $130,000 a year just because they own a building where they sit around vision casting while a barista makes around $10,000 a year for actually making the products? If you think this is unjust, you've just made your first intuitive link, a leap towards socialism. It's not the whole way, but that is the sort of moral impetus. Now with that preceding discussion in mind of just sort of theoretically capitalism, socialism, what does the Bible have to say about private property and personal property. Well, of course, it doesn't use those words, but let's see if we can parse apart what it might mean. The first thing that you'll notice is that the Bible is extremely strict about the ownership of personal property and very loose with the ownership of private property, actually, when you read it carefully. 
When the Bible commands us not to steal and envy, it specifies that we are not to desire or take our neighbor's house or wife or donkey in Exodus 20. That is, we're not allowed to take our neighbor's personal property, you know, with the uh, problem of, what, 3,000 years uh, of background, knowing that maybe wives shouldn't be property. But that's sort of how it was described. Now, it sounds good to me to say that no one should be stealing each other's personal property. No socialist would disagree. But what about private property? Well, there were no factories in ancient Israel and no bars that we know of. So the means of production basically meant the land. And famously, the year of Jubilee was specifically commanded by God in order to prevent private individuals from accumulating all of the land of Israel and becoming a ruler owner class, a class of capitalists, more or less. God himself forbade the centralization of the means of production or private property into a few private hands. Beyond this very strong and indeed radical law, the Bible puts other legal restrictions on the use of private property. The edges of the fields belong not to the owner of the field, but to the poor. Same with the grapes that fall off the vine, but miss the gatherer's basket. The poor tithe, one of the tithes on Israelite produce, also belonged to the community's poor rather than the field's owner. All in all, by um, what I was able to calculate up and read in various other sources, an Israelite was paying up to 30% income tax on their produce, which meant went to the expenses running the government, to the poor, and supporting the state religion. In modern times, and in modern terms, the government re regularly seized up to 30% of the earnings of private property owners to support the poor in the state, and also once every 49 years declared universal redistribution of all private property to prevent capital accumulation. If a nation did this today, the CIA would be actively trying to invade it to overthrow its communist government. If we're gonna say that the Old Testament law has any relevance for today's Christian, that is what the Old Testament law actually says when it comes to economics. It may not be strictly communist, of course, but it's clear that scripture's actual laws lean more towards a, an egalitarian uh, distribution of wealth. So in sum, in the biblical section, while the Bible does affirm private personal property, it has an ambiguous relationship at best to private property. How am I doing on time, by the way? About two, well, three I didn't make a note of the exact time that you started, but I was going to give you roughly two more minutes. So, okay, perfect. Yeah. So at the end of the day, though, the most relevant question here is not even really what the Bible says or uh, what moral principles we can draw from Jesus's writings. They're not primary political writings. After all, they're primarily religious, personal, and um, with some political stuff towards the back. The question that we really have to ask today is which, which system, which economic system that we have available today or that we could imagine helps the poor the best? Which economic system does the most to end poverty, give people decent lives and produce sustainable societies? And on this question, there can be no doubt. Socialism is always better for the poor in general than in capitalism. And this should be obvious really. Intuitively, doesn't it make sense that it is better to be the part owner of a bar than to be the underplayed employee at a bar. But socialists, we don't just rely on intu intuition. So here are some facts. In 1986, at the end of the Cold War, when there were still very large, prosperous uh, communist countries, though that was close to the end of that period, um, if not pushing, pushing right at the end of that period, back when there were still major communist countries, Shirley Sarazetto and Howard Waitzkin published the article, Capitalism, Socialism, and the Physical Quality of Life in an academic journal. This study was the first ever large-scale academic comparison that the authors were aware of, at least, 
of how well capitalist and socialist countries met their population's physical needs. It was the first ever study to ask whether, on the whole, socialist countries or capitalist countries were better at making sure every citizen had food, healthcare, education, and other basic necessities. This study, and I will repeat again, the first ever study of its kind, found that the poor are always better off in socialist countries than in comparable capitalist ones. Let me close this time by briefly explaining how. Saraceto and Vaitskin created a spectrum from low-income countries to high-income countries and assigned all of the socialist and capitalist countries of the world, and the World Bank is the one who's defining which one is socialist, capitalist, whatnot, for the purposes of this article, into five categories. It went from low-income companies or low-income countries to high-income countries. They did this in order to prevent uh, comparing to very unequal societies, say the United States, which has got this massive amount of land and all these natural resources, to Cuba, which is relatively small in comparison to the United States, would be smaller than most than a lot of states. And so it would be illegitimate to sort of just compare which is that got the higher GDP. And so they would compare Cuba to a, a country that had a similar economic and uh, geographic spread. What they found, and this is the very last thing I'll say since I have to close quickly, is I'll just rattle off some statistics. People are better fed in socialist countries than comparative capitalist ones, often by 12 to 15%. Uh, infant mortality is double in capitalist countries compared to comparable socialist ones. Child death rates are around four times higher in capitalist countries than comparative socialist ones. Life expectancy is always higher in comparative social, socialist countries, a minimum of 67 years versus capitalism's minimum of 48 years. Think about that, 48 years versus 67. And most shockingly, socialist countries had 10 times more doctors per person than comparable, er, socialist countries had 10 times more doctors per person than comparable capitalist ones. So, as we go forward, we're going to be asking what's the most effective way to help the poor. Uh, the data is extremely clear. Socialism. Okay, well, round of applause to Gerhard. Even if you disagree, good job. Um, before I turn it over to Evan, only because I don't want to forget, and this is just awkward timing, but this is how we roll here at the All Gen Tab, I want to get our picture. So everybody, if you're drinking something, hold it up, and we are going to proverbially cheers. If I can remember the three keystroke here. Are you ready? Everybody ready? One more because that was awkward. All right. Thanks guys. Oh shoot. We need to do it. We had someone extra in there and we did not have Mark. We'll do it later again with Mark. Okay. Uh, Evan, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Well, take it away. All right. Well, thank you, Gerhard, for uh, for joining us for this conversation. Obviously, an important conversation. As I'd like to think that we all want to know what Jesus thinks about, you know, how we ought to arrange ourselves as a society, and whatnot. But to cut right to the chase, I think the question is clearly: No, Jesus was not a socialist. And Sarah, I'm, I'm mad because you kind of stole one of my my reasons for that. And I'd actually push back a little bit on, on whether or not it's anachronistic, because I would argue many mainline denomination. Uh, churches right now still think the question is very relevant. And they don't see it as anachronistic at all, but I'll come back to that. There are three reasons that basically I would say Jesus is not a socialist. Uh, the first reason is that Jesus is a monarchist. Jesus is the king of kings. And so in a very real way, 
that Jesus is the king of the world and he is the Lord of the Christian's life. And that necessarily means then that we would reject any cultural norms or governments that would compete with the lordship of Christ. Socialism is not only economic, it's also about how you think and what you say and who you worship. And so when we say that Christ is king, we are making a political statement. It's not just rhetoric. If socialism is not only at odds with Christianity then, but actually antagonistic, if that's something that I could demonstrate, then there would be no way that we could say that Jesus uh, is actually a socialist. Now, I know that most who call themselves socialists would claim that they're not outright Marxists, although I would say Gerhardt seemed pretty amenable to Marxism or communism. I'm a Marxist. Okay. Well, so- Communist Party USA member. Okay. So the difference, though, usually is, is one only of degree. Both assume the right of the state, and this is for those who are not members of the Communist Party USA, but who are more mild socialists or something. They, they both assume the right of the state to, in essence, confiscate property, which means really they own then a part of you. Historically, we see socialist governments like the Soviet Union or China or Cuba uh, or North Korea or Vietnam, they cannot tolerate the personal dignity that is taught by the Christian church. One wonders if our nation, our own nation, will tolerate uh, Christian views on things like gender or marriage uh, much longer. Socialism elevates the state over and above the individual in the name of the common good. But since our confession of Christ is personal and often goes against the social grain, it's paramount to defend individual rights over and against such groupthink. If Jesus is king, that means that he is sovereign over every human being on earth. And that means that he is certainly to be king in our hearts and minds and souls. Anything or anyone more precious to us than Jesus is an idol. And anything that keeps us from fully worshiping Christ is evil. If and when things like the common good or the communal will turn against Jesus, we should all be hoping for a free society again where we have individual rights and they can prevail against the mob. Individual rights rooted in man's dignity are only possible in a free society. So that's one, Jesus is a monarchist. Two, socialism is anachronistic uh, to Jesus. To extract Jesus from you know, his context, first century Judaism, whatever we want to call it, and place him alongside 19th century socialist ideas, I think is bad history and bad biblical interpretation. Indeed, most attempts to label Jesus a socialist are really just attempts to justify the state doing what the church ought to be doing. There are no biblical texts that justify a socialistic government or an economy in the name of Jesus, at least I'm not aware of any. You don't read the Bible and get out of it socialism, much less Marxism. Uh, in fact, Frederick Engels said the following, co-author of the Communist Manifesto, if some few passages of the Bible may be favorable to communism, the general spirit of its doctrine is nevertheless totally opposed to it. You see, Engels got it. He understood that you can't have Marxism and Christianity at the same time. So if you're going to say that Jesus is a socialist, you'd really have to read socialism back into the text. Uh, for the reasons that I'll cite below, I don't believe it flows from the text of Scripture. Within the Bible, you'll see many hallmarks of a free market society. Individual ownership, of course, we'll be debating private and uh, personal ownership of property, I'm sure. But uh, we do see 
individual ownership of property as being explicitly biblical. You see, the disciples were fishermen, and they worked, and they sold their fish for a profit. Lydia uh, was an entrepreneurial tradeswoman. The parable of the workers in the vineyard, that only makes sense as a radical kingdom parable if it was actually normal that you were valued for the work that you put in for the day, right? That was the parable where they um, all got the same amount of pay, even though some arrived later in the day. Likewise, the parable of the talents assumes inequality among human beings in their abilities uh, in, and in their talents. And by the way, Jesus also says that it would be better to go to the bank and, and let it collect interest. Economically, I just don't see Jesus advocating collectivism or statism. He's far more concerned with what you, uh, what, is, what, what is in your heart and what you are doing and how you are living. Three, um, we must make clear distinctions between the personal moral life to which we are called and the limits to which that life should be enforced by law. Christianity does not exist to eradicate poverty. Uh, but that is a main, at least, claim behind socialism. And so those are really two sort of divergent reasons for existing. Christianity is about the salvation of souls, and the teachings of Christ are geared to that end. So you can't extrapolate personal virtues to social systems. What I did here, though, was interesting, was Old Testament social systems being extrapolated to modern systems. So I'd be curious if Gerhard actually thinks that Old Testament laws still apply, and if so, I'd like to know which ones and why. Uh, I don't think that it'll do to assume the rightness of socialism because, for example, Christian persons are not to be greedy, or the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, or we're to sell what we have and give it to the poor. Those are personal calls of Christian discipleship, not a mandate for socialism. Moreover, we can only be generous if we have abundance to begin with, and we see far more abundance in free societies than coercive societies. By the way, every one of us on this panel lives not as socialists, but as capitalists. Uh, I think you're all driven by incentives and personal choice, and you expect everyone else to honor those rights. If you want to personally live a Franciscan existence, you're free to do so. I don't know how many of us actually do that, but more to the point, I would say if you really do want to help the poor, as Gerhard said, socialism does, because you love Jesus and Jesus said to do that, well, then you should fight for the poor to actually own things, to build wealth upon, to start a business, to protect what they have. Just don't say that the Bible says that we are to be personally virtuous and that socialism is equally virtuous because it advocates the virtues of sharing or generosity. One is voluntary and one is coercive. There's a huge difference. Now, what's my positive biblical case for a free society? I'm glad you asked. Point one, human beings have dignity because they are, were made in the image of God. Man derives his rights then by virtue of his creator and nature, not from the state. Point two, human beings are fallen, so their power over one another ought to be limited. Now, if you put those two things together, you see a need for a free society that honors man's dignity, but a limited government that limits his power. Point three, uh, the rightness and justice of private property is assumed in the Bible. Maybe we actually agree on that. Thou shalt not steal, Mark, makes no sense. If we cannot truly claim ownership to property, I would say the Bible doesn't uh, make a difference on how much property 
Abraham was very wealthy, for example. Thou shalt not bear false witness is the beginning or the continuation of enforceable contracts. That's rule of law. We are not to be a nation of laws, but a, a nation of men, but a nation of laws. That's imperative. And then thou shalt not covet. It's the moral restraint against the greed that could come as the result of individual ownership. Those three are the hallmarks of a free and virtuous and prosperous society. Point four, private property helps the poor defend what they have and build wealth. Wasn't it just so evil when Jezebel killed Naboth just for his vineyard? You see, he really had a right to his property, didn't he? Point five, yes, Christians are called to be generous and loving and socially concerned. What I reject are Christians who presume to hold the moral high ground because they are willing to let the state do what the church is called to do. Point six, the Bible teaches that the workers deserves their wages, and he who does not work does not eat. There is dignity in labor. In fact, God created you for work. Finally, placeholder, in case this comes up, we need to remember there's a great discrepancy between something like capitalism and consumerism. Uh, Christians should reject materialism or consumerism. Abundance does not bring one joy. Capitalism is simply a vehicle through which you create wealth, and capitalism without also the rule of law and without virtue would be perhaps terrifying indeed. So I'm not arguing just for capitalism. I'm arguing for a whole Christian worldview, which includes certain other principles. So to summarize, socialism rejects private ownership of property. The Bible assumes private ownership of property. Socialism, too. Socialism coerces redistribution of property in the name of compassion. The Bible encourages charity, but does not work with the government to compel it. Three, socialist governments are not only interested in your money, they also want your heart and your mind and your soul. But of course, we know that the law of God is to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then finally, four, Jesus cannot advocate any government except the one where he is king. So the answer as to whether or not Jesus was or is a socialist must be no. Sarah, you're Sorry about, I know, I know. Sorry. Hi. Thank you. Yes. Yay. Okay. Mark, welcome back. Perfect timing. Um, I'm going to go ahead and keep it on gallery view for those watching on Facebook, um, because I want you to be able to see other people's reactions, but I'm going to give Evan and Gerhard just like three or four minutes tops. We are not going to cover everything, but just to react to each other a little bit. Um, so Gerhard, obviously I'm going to let you go first and just take like just a couple of minutes to, if there's something that he said that just really bugged you or you loved, uh, take that away and then we'll hit it back to Evan. Okay, I'll be done quickly. Uh, one, okay. we live as capitalists is, I don't think a serious argument. Uh, we live in a capitalist society and have to engage in the mode of production in which we currently live. And so there is literally no way I could live in a Marxist country unless I move to a Marxist country. So I don't think that we live as capitalists is a good argument if we live in America. Uh, the poor should own things. That's why they should own the means of production. I agree. Uh, so they should be able to own. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you for telling me to leave the country. Uh, very good and kind and charitable of you. Uh, yeah. So actually, I want to throw this out here first. So America has a history of the Red Scare. And this is um, a term for about the last 150 years where Christians have said, Mark, we can't do Marxism. And basically what this was intended to do is allow capitalists to 
silence any critique from the left and uh, make it so that Christians would be willing servants to the people who were ruling over them as their bosses and owners. And that uh, just saying like a capitalist or a Christian can't be a socialist uh, or a Christian or an American can't be a socialist is actually just evidence of propaganda uh, having its actual effect. So that was more to the common than to Evan. Uh, voluntary, let's see. I, I wanna ask why fallenness only applies to the government and not to businesses. Right, like I want to know why uh, it, why we can see that the president or the dictator of a country, uh, we can see how fallenness would affect the way he would relate to his subjects, but not how a small business owner would relate to their employees. Uh, uh, third, uh, I guess fourth, actually, uh, the claim that capitalism is not consumerism is not accurate. I mean, there's no that doesn't mean anything. I would say it's like saying I don't like ice. I like H two O. Uh, I like frozen H two O. It's Capitalism is consumerism. That's it's part of its nature. Um, and I would third say uh, having like just saying everyone should convert to Christianity and be good Christians is not a political platform and is not a political argument. It's a religious argument. And so it is true that, you know, giving has to be voluntary in order to say, I don't know, fulfill the law of God or something. But that's not what politics is about. Politics is about organizing people in a uh, broad community to work together, protect each other, support each other, uh, and overlook one another's religious differences. And so unless we're going to live in a theocracy, uh, I don't think that saying uh, let's convert everyone and make everyone good Christians is a, a serious argument because it's not, it's not politics. So how could it be a political argument? Um, I think that's spicy enough. We'll keep it there for now. And, and I will say, we, we mentioned in the chat box, somebody in the chat box, and I think maybe didn't mean for it to be quite so spicy and apologized, but just as a reminder, we are being charitable here. So when he says something about moving to a socialist country, we're not going to say things like, we'll go for it. Um, because we like having you here, Gerhard. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Evan, are you ready to kind of come back with uh, three, four minutes of your own thoughts? Sure. You always have um, thought. Yeah, I mean... I, I, I'll, I'll say that, I mean, a lot of what Gerhard presented wasn't strictly biblical, so it, it, it's probably a little bit outside of my, my sphere of influence. I mean, I didn't really, I haven't studied economics in any great detail, and I'm not going to presume that I have. But um, I, I guess one of the things that sort of confused me a little bit is that when, when, when exactly does the point of, uh, of ownership end, right? So we can have a toothbrush, we can have a car. We can have a house. How big can that house be? Can we work out of that house? If we, if let's say we we um, we we babysit out of our house, or we have a nursery out of our house. Uh oh, now we're producing something. Do do our neighbors have to be involved in the means of production in our house? It, it, so where where does that line end? Uh, I, I don't know why we would assume that someone who owns a factory, for example, uh, or or owns a business is, is uh, doing anything uh, wrong or why they wouldn't have a right to own that if they have a right to own smaller things. Uh, who, who gets to say and why, uh, you know, exactly who does things. But I guess, like I said, there wasn't a lot there in the Bible. So uh, I was very interested that you cited the Old Testament laws. So I'm curious as to what degree you think Old Testament law still applies, especially the civil laws. I think that we would agree that uh, ceremonial laws are done away with. I think we would agree that the moral laws continue. But if you're going to cite Old Testament laws, 
uh, like the Jubilee year and the uh, gleaning laws and such, I'd be curious uh, as, as to how far that would apply, for example, on something like sexual morality, uh, or could we look to Old Testament laws on something like abortion, or do those no longer apply? Um, you know, the, the fact is, I think that what, you know, the Bible isn't going to answer this question. I think, I think, I think we agree to a degree, um, you know, uh, you know, fully successfully. I, I think that Christians actually were always meant and we're always going to live under a variety of systems, including tyrannical systems, including the system and, you know, the, the empire in which they were birthed. And I believe that what you see in the New Testament is a consistent message, actually, of compliance, even, even un, at the hands of tyrants, uh, so that Christianity can flourish in any context of environments. I don't, I'm not, I haven't argued, I don't think I argued anything about America per se. Maybe I did. Um, but I'm not, you know, championing America per se. I think America is, in fact, in many respects, already a socialist country. Um, and, uh, but I, I think the question is, and, and what, I, what I was saying to Sarah earlier, where she said, well, we all agree it's anachronistic. Well, kind of. Uh, I was in a very liberal uh, denomination, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. For I grew up in it, was in it for a number of years. Just go to their website and go to it right now and look at their advocacy page. I assume it's true for the PCUSA, the Methodist Church, probably certainly the Episcopal Church, the UCC. What are they, what are they advocating for? Why do they have people in Washington, D.C. lobbying for certain things? And what are they what are they lobbying for? They're all essentially socialistic enterprise, more government that basically we need the government to come in and rescue people from this or that or other, you know, the other thing. Um, so, you know, I, so, yeah, it's anachronistic, but people don't think that way. People are have taken Jesus and they've they've converted him to socialism and then they've championed socialist uh, governments and policies and such in the name of Jesus. And that's what offends me. Okay, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and cut you off there okay. just because Thank you. I can see everybody itching to talk. Um, before we get into our next spot, because Mark is back, I'm going to make you guys take another picture. So everybody get your drinks ready and do your fake toast. It's cheesy, but you'll thank me later. It's for posterity. Okay, we're done with that. Um, here's what I want to... <laughs> Bye. Okay, here's what I want to do next. I want to have everybody that was not... Evan and Gerhard, just quickly, and I mean really quickly, like 30 seconds or less, uh, remind us of your name um, and give us just kind of like a, when you think of the word socialism, what comes to mind? Maybe that's a definition. Maybe it's just like off the cuff, socialism seems to me to mean this. Um, just so we kind of are working with a, at least a knowledge of what each other is thinking socialism is. Uh, and then we're just gonna dive into the question. Sound good? All right, so Taylor, why don't you start us off? I saw I saw the veins throbbing, and I saw Amy's eyes doing. Everybody has their tells. It's great. If I ever play poker with you guys, I'm like ready to go. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. So, um, really, I I was dying to get in because I'd like to respond to some of the specific examples that Gerhard uh, gave, but just as kind of a blanket statement, what my thoughts are. Uh, I think that socialism doesn't work, but that if it did it would be immoral in practice uh, because I think socialism is a system that is based on compulsion, right? When, when people don't agree, they have to be forced to comply. And at the end of the day, laws are enforced at the point of a gun. Uh, by contrast, uh, the kind of basic American capitalist principle uh, has always been, I want to live free and I want you to live free. You see, there's a huge amount of disagreement 
that is acceptable within that framework. You know, we can disagree on very important, even some basic principles and still both pursue our own respective goals and values. Uh, but on socialism, the government has the responsibility to do so much more and therefore they have to regulate so much more. And the result is that there's a, there's a very narrow range of things where it's really acceptable to disagree. Uh, and, okay. and it was supposed to be 30 okay, here. seconds, my friend. Are you still there? Sorry. I just, I want to make sure everybody gets just their quick intro. And then, uh, and just so you guys know on the podcast later where we review this and we tackle all the unanswered questions, uh, Gerhard will be joining us again along with Taylor. So if you like either of what they have to say, find us on theology on air in a couple of weeks, but, uh, Amy, how about you hit us up next? Name's Amy. I'm a historian. Um, trying so hard not to respond to anything, really trying. Um, the word socialism doesn't scare me. Um, again, I, I'm a historian, so I spend a lot of time around um, how we kind of build concepts and how we feel about concepts more than actually um, what they are. Um, so it doesn't scare me as a concept, um, but I am actually not a socialist. And I'll just tease you with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing really good not to respond. You're doing great. You're doing great. Okay, Brune, you're up. Yeah, happy to. Bryn Stacey, uh, Rice University. But I, I, I think one of the challenges, and I haven't heard it yet, is uh, honoring the kind of panoply of socialist uh, accord. There's democratic socialism, right? There's totalitarian socialism. There's everything in between. So it seems helpful in this discussion to want to point out that the positive benefits and things that have uh, Christian vestiges maybe in the West, in Western Europe, particularly that are socialist democratic countries, while also abling to point out the negative effects in more totalitarian socialist context. All right, and that leaves our friend Mark with the cool accent. Yes, I have a cool accent because I was born in England, which means I was born in the NHS and they didn't completely botch it up, which is why I'm here. So uh, the NHS is socialized medicine. Um, and so I come from a very different perspective I grew up in the church in England and then moved over here just as uh, Obama was uh, launching Obamacare. So I have no idea what Americans think they're talking about when they're talking about socialism, because, I mean, it's really, it's a pejorative. It's used primarily as a bad person label. Um, so I, I, I will happily like take it to myself whenever I feel like somebody's saying like, oh no, there's, there's those bad socialists. Because um, mm -hmm. over here it's like socialism, versus freedom. But when you look at like the anti-slavery movement, the socialists were fighting against slavery. If you look at the civil rights, the socialists and the communists were fighting for civil rights. Um, so I, this, this socialism freedom binary it completely confuses me because I'm British. Because I'm British. Um, remember the, um, <laughs> remember the uh, theology on top where every time Amy answered, she was like, well, as a historian, I feel like tonight, every time Mark answers, he's going to be like, as a Brit. Anyway, okay. We are going to hit up our questions. We have so many questions. I am like having a hard time keeping up with all the different platforms. So, uh, but here is the first question. It's pretty simple. It's another kind of defining of terms. But the question is, what's the difference between socialism and communism? Because I think we're all, the people that are worried about socialism are worried that it's a stepping stone to communism. And we all, we all sort of have this idea that communism is bad. So... Maybe a couple of you can speak to that. I don't think I have that idea. Uh, communism is good. And I hope socialism is a stepping stone to it. 
I, I like that you're not scared. All right. No, I mean, it's just an, it's an economic system and a political system. The only reason people are scared of it is the propaganda of the Red Scare and saying it's fun, like saying it's fundamentally immoral for the reasons that capitalists gave us to fight against it is just playing into the propagandist hands. I think we should accept it. Can I, I mean, we bad, can argue about. Can I come back on that, Sarah? Kind of has a bad human rights track record, too. I mean, so does yeah. capitalism. Yeah. I mean, genocide, slavery. I mean, the Iraq war, uh, all of Latin America was overthrown by, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about human rights record, let's leave it all up on the table. States do crimes, right. well, that's what they do. All together, and it wouldn't equal what socialists did just in the 20th century alone. I don't know. Can you cite those stats? Can you cite those stats? Because people How say that, but they can't cite it. millions of enslaved people were taken to the new world? Uh, anyway, I can tell you five Guys, 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 I'm calling, I'm calling rank here only because it's a zoom call and we're not in person it we're missing the beginning of what everybody says so uh oh, i'm gonna go i'm gonna kind of facilitate this we're gonna go gerhard taylor amy go gerhard just so i'm clear what is the exact thing that we're throwing out just here? continuing to respond i think the last thing you were gonna say was like show me some statistics because people yeah, like it, to throw around so taylor you you claimed that socialism has done more in just the past century than all of capitalism like give me those stats i don't right, believe taylor you're up yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think capitalism has really uh, existed as an idea until 1776, right? Uh, and when it was embraced, what happened was you saw more people around the world lifted out of poverty by this idea than anything, any other political system that has ever existed. Uh, and, and I actually think it is good to export good ideas. Uh, I, I know that there's some contention about, uh, you know, us you know, spreading this, uh, this idea of uh, capitalism, which is seen as consumerism uh, to other countries. But when the net effect is to lift up the poor and, and to enable people, I think it's a tremendous good. And I think that socialism everywhere that it has been tried has, has led to human suffering. And specifically in the 20th century, I'm talking about uh, Russia, uh, Stalin's Russia, and I'm talking about Mussolini, I'm talking about Pol Pot, and I'm talking about Hitler too. Uh, Mussolini? Hitler. Uh -huh. What? Mm-hmm. Mussolini, Mussolini? Was Marxist. Wasn't communist, no. Okay, well, let yeah. Amy go ahead and go, because, woo, we've got a spicy crowd tonight. I like it. Mussolini was a fascist. He wasn't a communist. I mean, um, the Nazis were not in a communist. And the, and the Nazis. Yes, but see, there's a, there's a, there's a problem with our, our definitions and the, and the way that uh, we use the words now uh, versus then, and, and e even now just in different countries. But the idea in, in each case was that they believed in this huge centralized government that uh, had power and control over the private sector. Okay, I'm gonna pause you just because I see various people. Amy got cut off, so Amy, you go, and then I think Mark wants to say something. Oh, there's just so much. Putting I know. But remember that the question that we're on has to do oh. with what's the difference between socialism and communism, and nobody's really kind of... Okay, so I'll take that. Um, okay. Terribly. Um, it, it's, it's hard to tease apart. And the reality is Marx's view of utopian society had to do with how he analyzed um, history, how it moves forward through um, ec economics and technology and how uh, labor is distributed. So he has a huge system and a huge way of analyzing history. But his end goal was if you analyze history all this way, eventually you'll get to this communist revolution where um, that the people can all mutually own the means of production, right? Everybody will be working together because there won't be scarcity, right? Where we're, we, we're pitted against each other. So um, that's kind of his ideal view. And other 
communists, Mao, um, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam is another one. They actually each have their own kind of philosophical twist uh, on communism as well. Socialism is actually just, it's a broader umbrella than communism. Um, you can, if you wanna take that term and press it backwards anachronistically, um, the term does come after um, scholars are taking kind of Marxist ideas and they're trying to kind of twist it and be like, oh, we wanna leave a lot of it, but here's what we want. We wanna have this idea of living in common. So there's a lot of, in the 19th century, attempts to create these kind of little utopian societies where people can live in common. But really, if it's about communal living, some people press the term commun or socialist back to, um, let's say, um, kind of there's some Christian communities that live in common, like um, like Hutterites, their version of kind of like the Amish, um, they're, they're what's called Anabaptist. Um, also, you could even push it back to the early church um, in Acts where it says they, you know, they lived all in common as well. So some people push the term back there. However, the modern term really comes off of kind of Western Europeans putting a different spin on, on, on Marx. But in the end, right now, as we're functioning, when you get democratic socialists and stuff, it's really all it is is wanting some pretty wide sweeping reforms on things like healthcare and schools and, 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 and putting more um, maybe like public Wi-Fi, things like that, into the public service realm in order uh, to not just completely supplant capitalism, but to push against its, its kind of greater abuses uh, in order to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to be able to become entrepreneurs and all these great things that, uh, that capitalists seem to like. Okay. Mark, did I see you chumping at the bit? Uh, maybe. Uh, so I read a helpful, uh, this is from uh, Ella Baker. I'm reading a biography on her right now by Barbara Ransby. Um, but uh, so one of her mentors, George Schuyler, has a uh, quote in here, and he's, he's trying to tease out the difference between communism and socialism. And he adds uh, anarchism, or he calls it co cooperators. Um, so he says uh, they're, they're all kind of aiming for this, this, this end goal of uh, an improved society. Uh, the communist is trying to get there through the bullet, the socialist is trying to get there through the ballot, and the cooperator or the anarchist is trying to get there through um, sort of cooperative, slowly, methodically, through like grass-level organizing. Um, I, I, that kind of maybe teases out some, because again, mostly what we're doing here is labeling. And so we use, we got socialism as a pejorative label, and if we can apply that, particularly when it's almost exclusively used for like big totalitarian governments. If it's a big totalitarian government, it's by default socialist. So obviously, uh, you know, the Nazis are socialists and obviously, mm -hmm. but that's not at all, you know, no socialist, nobody who sort of recognized that, those ideas would think, oh, big totalitarian state government, that's, that's by default socialism because that's, that's just not really engaging with political thought. Um, as it I tell of, you what, why what don't is, we- What does uh, oh. Nazi stand for? <laughs> what does the uh, Democratic People's Republic of Korea stand for? And what is it? Can I, can I just say something, Sarah? Because we've, we've, we've already gotten this real confusion between, you know, people say, oh, capitalism brought about the slave trade. Well, I, I wasn't arguing for capitalism. The question is wh whether Jesus was a socialist. And did Jesus, did Jesus approve of chattel slavery? No. So the argument is what, what I'm arguing, what I would, I don't care what anyone else is arguing for. I can only speak for myself. What I'm arguing for is a free and proper, prosperous and virtuous society. And so, uh, for example, uh, Gerhard, uh, and I've said this on a previous podcast, uh, if we took very seriously the laws against kidnapping um, and, uh, and, and, and murder and 
uh, or just kidnapping. Let's just stop there. An Old Testament law, death penalty offense, death penalty, civil code offense. I'm wondering uh, if you think there should be a death penalty for kidnapping, because that would have pretty well done away with, uh, or at least put it been a big deterrent to something like slavery. But capital to, to equate capitalism or uh, slavery and capitalism, I think is um, unnecessary. And, and no one here is advocating for slavery. So it's a red herring. And by the way, we weren't America until 17, uh, what, 90. So it was really the British who were involved in the slave trade for all those years. Oh, my God. Not true. Oh, my God. <laughs> Amy, if, did you have a slavery? I muted. I'm sorry. But that's just historically not true. I'm sorry about the slave trade. That's historically not remotely true. America was full blown into the slave trade. The Atlantic slave trade was done away with in um, the um, in, in, in 1807 uh, under Thomas Jefferson's rule, but that was only the Atlantic slave trade. Um, there's a new middle passage to move. It's actually crueler once that happens because there is an incentive to breed more slaves within South Carolina and other old, um, old South states to then bring those human bodies to places like Texas and Louisiana to do absolutely nothing other than work on cotton as a large commodity fueled by communist, uh, sorry, nope, totally wrong, fueled by capitalistic view of production. And in fact, up until the Civil War, the number one wealth accumulation we had in the United States when someone wanted more land in order to have collateral, to, to have a loan, to get more land, you use your slave bodies as collateral to get more land. Unless, so it is deeply woven into the history of capitalism and America. Let me, let me, let me, let me go to Taylor. Woo, I'm going to have to be a mean oh. MC tonight. Taylor, and then I am going to lob up our next question because we're going to keep doing this all night. Well, I'll be really brief then. Uh, I was just going to say, Amy, that that is really helpful context and, and I appreciate it. Uh, I think that the point that I would make, and maybe that Evan was making too, is that slavery definitely pre-existed capitalism and, and America generally, and it was pervasive in every corner of the world at that time. Uh, and it wasn't just the African slave trade. And so uh, it, 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 it is part of our history, and, and uh, it, it's a very dark part, but it's not um, endemic to, to capitalism exclusively. But it, it it is, is, is brought into a large scale by capitalism, like the use of cash crops the, the, for sugarcane in the Caribbean and for brown gold, that is tobacco that they find in the, uh, or that they discovered that they can grow really well in Virginia. It is actually capitalistic structures that fuel the bringing of slaves. And even those capitalistic structures in the reality, they realize that they can make money with this cheap labor that actually feels the definition of people from Africa as being kind of but, subhuman. But so, so it was exploited by capitalism because capitalism basically uh, lets the uh, prospect of personal gain run wild, right? Uh, there, there's this fact about human nature that we're all out for our own self-interest. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, that's, that's just uh, sociology. That's, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Uh, maybe not on an individual level, but on a group level, we're all pursuing our own self-interest. Uh, but what's interesting about that is that capitalism didn't start slavery, right? Slavery was started for the, the same reason, because it was beneficial to somebody that had power over somebody else. Okay, I want to let Gerhard say something, and then I promise we're going to the next question, regardless of how outlandish his claims are. Here we go. Gerhard. Hey, uh, did, did uh, communism start genocide? 
Uh, I, well, I don't know if I would pin that on uh, communism or capitalism as a system. But, but all the, earlier you said the reason we can't be socialists is because the evils of the socialist society. And if so, slavery can't be pinned on capitalism, like we can pin genocide on communism, I'm, I want to see why why capitalism gets the moral uh, the moral overlooking, but communism is, at, we capitalist Americans can yeah. say they over there do the bad things, we can't yeah. think their way. Yeah, so uh, I'll answer it this way. Uh, if there is this fallen human condition, which we believe is Christians, uh, and part of that is that we are bent towards selfishness and we are motivated primarily by our own personal gain, then what is the better restraint on that? Is it a system that says you become wealthy and you get what you want by helping other people, by giving them a better mousetrap for as little money as possible, by entering into as many voluntary transactions as many times as you possibly can, where people willingly uh, give you their currency because they want your product more than they want the currency, or is it the other thing? Uh, and, and I would argue emphatically that uh, the, the, the idea that I can enrich myself uh, by helping other people in a capitalist system is a great and sophisticated thing that takes into account the full nature of human beings. Okay, I'm gonna pause, push the pause button. I have, I'm not used to being this mean. Somebody just texted me and said, TOT has not been this chippy in a long time. I don't know that word, but I love it already. Okay, quick, before we go to the next question, do any of you only raise your hand, do any of you think that you can in 30 seconds or less truly just define socialism? Because I still have people texting me saying, we're still not exactly sure what it is. Raise your hand if you think you can in 30 seconds. Okay, Gerhard, go. I mean, so, I mean, I, the beginning of my introduction, uh, Socialism is the economic system in which uh, people through some mechanism or another control the means of production and therefore the fruits of production. Uh, that can be either, like Mark said, through grassroots co-ops, workers, unions, things like that, or in my preferred sort of way, the state nationalizes uh, major industries and necessary uh, other necessary industries like the healthcare industry, the steel industry, the oil industry, things like that, are brought under the ownership of the state, like public schools are under the ownership of the state and facilitated by the state. Um, okay, I appreciate that. And so that. it's somewhere between those two. No, Brune, you haven't said anything. Is there anything you want to say before we go to our next question? I haven't Just... needed to, no, this okay. is great, go ahead. Well, the, you, there's some stuff in the chat box, but okay. The next question that we are going to do um, kind of looks at it from the other angle. And so I'm, I like this, it says, what do we mean by freedom? And when that freedom infringes, ah, People are going so quickly, I can't read it. Okay. And when that freedom infringes on the well-being of others, is it still, quote, freedom? What is the value and Great virtue question. of freedom? It's in the chat box for everybody to see. But for those of you on Facebook, one more time, we're asking about what's meant by freedom. And when that freedom infringes on the well-being of others, is it still freedom? What is the value and virtue of freedom? Y'all, play nice. Here we go. Taylor, go. Uh, really simply, I would just say that uh, freedom means that I can do anything that I want to do. I can think anything I want to do so long as I don't affect anybody else's right to do the same. So basically, I am free to swing my arm right up into the point that it hits your nose, right? Like I can't do that. I can't go that far. Uh, but I can do basically what I want to do. You can do what you want to do so long as we're not directly uh, affecting somebody else's right to be free as well. Okay, Gerhard and then Amy. Oh, is this just staying on the same question? I was going to ask Taylor a follow-up question. I cannot do that if you'd rather. I, it depends on what the follow-up question is. But I mean, yeah, do you have anything else to say about freedom? 
because you uh, and Taylor will get to spar later. So if it's just okay. between you and Taylor, maybe save it. Sure. I think freedom is a uh, big fancy word that people like to throw in. It doesn't mean a whole lot. Oh, okay. I think when, uh, I th so there's an interesting phenomenon in Latin American internet culture, uh, and it actually spread to North American internet culture a couple years ago where they would make memes uh, of like bombs dropping and say, America's bringing our freedom. Uh, that, that is, I mean, our definition of freedom that we normally live with and that I've heard sometime tonight, I don't think has much more meaning than that. I don't think it has much concrete meaning and I don't think that we should accept vague uh, words that sound good like freedom as a basis for our economic planning. Amy? Well, okay. I, I will say, I think it's, it's, it is extremely contextual and extremely complicated. I, and I'm fine with Tyler, uh, Taylor's de uh, definition about like, you're free to move until it kind of infringes on somebody else. The problem is when, when our economy is so complicated, it's so intertwined, um, what one person would define as this is my freedom is the other person's, this is someone infringing upon my freedom. What like, or, a direct infringement? I don't know who's talking to me. Oh, sorry, it was Taylor. Um, oh, no, I was just agreeing with you. I'm sorry. Really? Wait, what? I was agreeing with you, but yeah, we okay, can't yeah. do the quick interjections on Zoom. Yeah, because well. I don't sorry. work on Zoom. It's annoying. Um, um, I just said it again. Uh, but and it's like the it's like the mask thing. And I don't mean to like take it on because it's so complicated or it's so inflammatory. But the whole idea is like you wear a mask. It's not about your personal freedom of what you wear. It's about the space that you're breathing into, and the, and that protects. The people around you from your breath. And so depending on how you think about it, your freedom is to not wear the cloth or your freedom is to be free from other people's breaths because they wore the cloth. Right. And so I do think that like a little bit like Taylor said, and like Gerhard said, it's infinitely complicated, especially as our lives and our money are all intertwined, interconnected. And I think especially in a capitalist society, which apparently Evan was not advocating for, the reality is is we do have very, very powerful uh, corporations. And that if we don't have anything to balance that power, to also have a strong government, strong people to balance the power, then we're actually just gonna be subject to them. So there, freedom is super complicated and super contextual. Evan, I know you wanted to say something and then Brune. Yeah, actually the, the companies like Google are way too powerful. They control information um, and they, they're trying to manipulate us in many respects. Um, and they definitely have a political point of view, by the way, uh, as do all the social medias and such. Um, uh, freedom is complicated and it has different contexts. There's spiritual freedom. Are we talking about biblical freedom, like freedom Christians have? Or are we talking about political freedom? Christians have lived in all kinds of contexts in which they had freedom and when, you know, when they did not. The question is the question isn't really what is freedom. I think it's more why should we strive for for anyone to have freedom? Like like why why do human beings deserve freedom? Why should any you know human being have the right to stand in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square, for example, and say, you know, I have value, I have dignity. You don't get to just kill us. You don't get to kill your own people here. Okay, you don't get to threaten us with the power of the military. Okay, why? What is it about the human being that gives them that right? You don't find that in in communism. You don't find an anthropology in socialism, or, or, or do you? I mean, I, I didn't hear it in the manifesto. I mean, socialism you, is an economic theory. It's not theology. Why, were, why are well, we the, looking the for question, The question tonight is, was Jesus a socialist? It's a theological question. Well, so, I mean, the introduction was not, was sort of making clear that that's sort of a cute uh, draw in, and the real question is, can and should Christians be socialists? But socialism it's not is cute, not theology. It's not a, 
it's not a cute drawing if there are many Christians who consider themselves liberal progressive Christians and many de whole denominations who advocate for socialist policies and socialist government interventions, et cetera, in the name of Jesus. Okay, I, I mean, want to kick it over to Brun because Brun hasn't said anything, so this better be good. <laughs> no, right? I'm enjoying no. all this. Don't uh -huh. you remember uh, Matt Damon in Good Will Hunting when he's like, uh, liberty is the soul's right to breathe. I think he's courting uh, Henry Ward Beecher, but I would agree with most of what has just been highlighted there. I just <clears> want to add, I think the interesting question is whether or not the means of production and the, the extended arm of the role of the state in socialist communist settings, uh, to what degree we should be optimistic about that. I think that's where I have pause because mm -hmm. it seems that, and, and, and I would say, I'm not, I'm in Evan's camp in some regard, but I don't, I don't pretend that the invisible hand of the free market acts as, um, charitably and graciously as potentially the arm of the state could function in, socialist governments, I just, I feel like there's at least some data, some of it modern, without caricatures of Nazis and whatever other skeletons we don't want to talk about. I mean, you, there are some modern examples that would give me enough pause to say, given power and opportunity and enough of it, there doesn't seem to me to give the same optimism to produce the outcomes that you want. I think that's the challenge for me. All right, Mark, did you want to say something other than in the chat? Chat room sounds so like 1994, but did you want to say anything? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with uh, like, was Jesus a socialist when looking at some like mainland liberal denominations who are like looking for more just, slightly more just policies. Like we're not, that's not, you know, those people aren't gonna understand this as saying Jesus was a socialist. Um, slightly, slightly, like a couple of slightly more liberal policies and necessarily like a full-blown advocation for Jesus being a part. Like you're gonna have to understand how those folks understand the church in relation to the state and the influences of culture. But yeah, they're, they're not saying that Jesus was a, was a socialist. And so it's gonna be very hard to have a conversation where we've got a socialist here who's advocating things. And then we've got folks saying, well, anybody, anybody who advocates a liberal policy in, in American government is a socialist. Um, yeah, we're, that's not gonna help us. Did you want to comment at all about the freedom question? Oh, sure. Uh, freedom is America, which is why I came here uh, primarily. Um, wait, no, I don't know what, fr like freedom. Oh, uh, I thought you were being serious. You got me. I was like, yay, America. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. There's this idea that but I, the American idea of freedom is really very weird um, to me. Sorry. Um, but yes, because I mean, I think freedom, you know, I'd love Martin Luther King to be free from the persecution of the FBI who were coming down on him for his associations with communists. So you can talk about Tiananmen Square all you like, but if you're not talking about what uh, MLK faced at the hands of the FBI, then we're, we're distancing ourselves from real conversations that have happened here. Um, I, uh, that's, that's the freedom I wanna look for. And I think for churches, I'm looking for freedom from consumerism, freedom from mega corporations, freedom for the, the Ad, constant advertising that's bombarding us, the consumerism that uh, I think most of us on the left side would consider as part of what capital and how capitalism um, runs. So we're looking for freedom from those things, uh, which we'll all agree on how to get there. Um, but when we just talk about freedom without sort of, we're not critiquing a lot of systems that are controlling us. 
It's interesting. I wonder, this is just my own question, but we're going to go to a real person's question here in a second. But I wonder if anybody on this panel, because we are all Christians and we all believe that we're sinful, people are sinful, everybody, if even something utopian is possible at all. I mean, we would all probably, I would assume we would agree that utopia is not possible. Is that okay? Interesting. Jesus, with Jesus, it's possible. I, I do want to throw out here, it's an important point that utopia is not the exclusive domain of Marxist. Uh, when libertarians yeah. talk about their uh, ideal future where everyone's just happy and trading commodities and whatnot, that's an extremely utopian view that has never happened in history and will never happen again. Right. And no. just like the orthodox Marxist no. stateless position, no, just like the orthodox stateless Marxist position is utopian and fan it's fantastical. It's not going to happen. Well, I'm glad you said Marxist so because our next question is about Marx. And y'all, if we already didn't think tonight was spicy, just buckle up. Everyone take a sip of your beer or whiskey or whatever because don't need it. Okay. I'm not making this stuff up. I am just copying and pasting, y'all. The question that we're going to do next says this. <clears throat> Whenever socialism comes up, we hear about Karl Marx. Not exactly sure what Marxism is, but Marxism is being pointed to a lot in today's news, especially as it relates to the Black Lives Matter organization. Are they Marxist and why does that matter? No, no, they are not. And that is entirely fraudulent. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let me just say the question one more time because people on Facebook don't have it in front of them. And so I just want to make sure they yep. hear it. And then we'll I, apparently I just throw that first. Okay, okay. Whenever socialism comes up, we hear about Karl Marx, not exactly sure what Marxism is, but Marxism is being pointed to a lot in today's news news, especially as it relates to the Black Lives Matter organization. Are they Marxist and why does that matter? I wonder if Gerhard, you might have anything to say about this. Black people don't want to die. Black people don't want to be murdered by cops anymore. I don't think well, we have to ask why people are protesting more than that. I mean, I would love if all Black Lives Matter people were Marxist, but they're just not. Like they're mostly just people. There are Marxists involved, just like there are capitalists involved, just like there are neutral people involved. But Can you maybe help Black Lives Matter is not an organization. They don't have a creed. Can you maybe help people um, just first by distinguishing? And again, we're not going to be able to cover all of Karl Marx's theories, but maybe Marxism, where does that separate from socialism? Or, I mean, uh, Marx was a uh, theorist of socialism. Uh, he was not the first socialist, he didn't uh, come up with the basic idea. Uh, but, I mean, he was the most prominent and important and sort of collect, he'd be like the Calvin of reformed theology, I think is a good analysis. Like he's not okay. the end, but he, and he's not the first, but he is the most important. Most analyzer. notable. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor, but, I mean, you're next. I'm next. Taylor. So uh, I, I just wanted to say, I think, I think I heard that Black Lives Matter as an organization doesn't have a creed or kind of an ideological framework. And what, whatever anybody thinks about it, I just want to point out that that's not true. Uh, both of the founders of uh, Black Lives Matters uh, have commented on this. And one of them, Patrice Cullors in particular said, and I'm gonna quote here, uh, the first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Myself and Alicia, that's the other uh, co-founder, in particular are trained organizers. She said, we are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. And I think that we really tried to, what we really tried to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. So they do have uh, an ideological framework. Now I accept and would even argue and have argued to other people that most people that support Black Lives Matter 
do not themselves ascribe to some form of Marxism. Uh, but I, I just wanted to point out that the organization itself uh, does have not, not just these statements, but uh, certain beliefs. Uh, if you go to their website, they're still up, I'm sure, that uh, are Marxist in nature and origin. What? Amy, like, where do you go? Wait, wait, wait. wait. I, okay. I told Amy she could go next. I'm so sorry. sorry. I did not know I was going to do so much monitoring tonight. I'm, Amy, I'm very ahead. sorry for jumping in. You're fine. also where the history helps. Um, Marx is one of the most influential thinkers of any kind of thought ever up into the 20th century. Um, and part of the reason that he is, is not just because of, you know, how communism and capitalism became to fight each other in the 20th century through the Cold War and stuff. But part of the reason is how he analyzes history and how he analyzes the fact, because before him, and he's kind of a part of a sociological move, that before him, people looked at history as like, ah, Napoleon went and did his thing. Ah, then this next great guy went and did his thing. And he was like, what's the economics of it? What's happening underneath? Who's making money out of it? Right. And then so his analysis of even like mentality, some of you, I know Sarah's used the word zeitgeist, that way of thinking about how you analyze, like, why is it that I feel a movement happening? Even that kind of thing that we are seeing right now is because like Marx really put a framework on it. He's the one who really first articulated it and, and, and a lot of other theorists will take it further. Specifically, the critical theory school, which is a school that happened in Frankfurt, it, Marx was not was only one of the many influential thinkers of that school, and mostly they said he was wrong about a lot, um, but he was still influential. And so, it, it's not to say that you are taking so. It's like saying that um, you know Taylor, are you a deist because you know Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin or or the Declaration of Independence has been influential on your life. No, it still had a good and positive influence. It's been a part of the way you think about the world because it's come into you, how you analyze things. But you at, at now are, are a Christian that has very nuanced views on it. So even that someone is versed in ideological theory and versed in Marxism, it's, it's, in, it's informed how they make their decisions. But hasn't your experience informed the way that you make your decisions also? Absolutely. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Evan, Evan, you were going to say something. Yeah. Um, Marx hated progress. Marx uh, hated the Industrial Revolution. He uh, did not believe that uh, Marxism or communism was possible uh, until the proletariat existed, as I read the manifesto, uh, until the Industrial Revolution, where those classes were even exaggerated and so on and so forth, and the workers lost more and more power and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not um, our more socialist-leaning friends here would um, also be in favor of, a, of, a, of, the, of the advancement that, you, that we've seen in the West in, in, in a capitalist society, or, or if we should hate the kind of progress that Marx actually uh, hated. Marx didn't hate progress, and he thought that the Industrial Revolution was necessary because that's the only way that we were going to get, because his theory of history was historical, like he actually believed in like the, the bourgeoisie revolutions of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and then later there is going to be an Industrial Revolution, and that's going to be the final revolution. So he absolutely believed that you had to go through the Industrial Age 
to get to this communistic utopia. It's just that the workers had to get together and realize their power. I don't think so. He, he viewed the Industrial Revolution as marginalizing workers and empowering capitalists because it was only people with capital and money who had the technology and the machinery to create the Industrial Revolution. So he was long past the Industrial Revolution. And so he's uh, not on. thinking it's in the future. It was 100 years before him. It led to the, the need for, for communism itself to bring about parity among people. And so well, he hated the Industrial Revolution. Let's do this. I mean, the question had to do with not only what is Marxism, and, but if Black Lives Matter, the organization, organization is, quote, Marxist, why is that bad or good? Okay, whether it is or not, like, why would that matter, I think, is what the person that is asking and some of the people in the chat box are asking as well. Like, well, why would I'll that be good why, or bad? I'll tell you why it does matter to talk, to say that it is Marxist. And it is because people want to not admit the fact that Black people are being killed just for being black in this country. Like, that's why that's, this is an elaborate way of getting around their critique of police power is by saying they're like the atheist bad Marxists. This is, uh, and so um, I looked up the quote, Taylor. Uh, there is actually an entire PolitiFact article on this where it points out that one of three of the founders described herself in her personal life as a trained Marxist. I have to just throw this in there. On the Wikipedia page, Alicia Garza also does. Okay, so yeah. uh, PolitiFact says uh, she, she and another co-founder are trained Marxist, uh, and then the third one is not. So is it both Marxist and non-Marxist at the same time, if we can just no, 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 no. personal careful, beliefs of one I, to the others? I, I read the PolitiFact um, article myself uh, because I've actually uh, done some reading on this recently. And the third member, who I didn't think was a founder, but I know is like a third leader, uh, they didn't say that they weren't a Marxist. They just haven't commented on it publicly. But the two so that why, have commented so why, on it said that they are Marxist, and the values on their website are pretty consistent with Marxist or orthodoxy, uh, one of which is the breaking down of the nuclear family, uh, because they think it's a, a Western-constructed kind of white uh, culture idea. Can I have a go? I, th sure. I think the question should be like whether Jesus would support BLM or something, because I think we need to get back to like. Yeah, bring it back to Jesus, Evan. Come on. Mark, what were you going to say? So this morning, my uh, my children's pastor from my church, who she uh, does videos, she's been doing this wonderful series on like the history of peaceful protest, looking at she's gone to taken uh, looked at murals in Houston and uh, protest poems and songs. And in her video on Sunday, she had a puppet holding up a Black Lives Matter sign. And she got an angry call from a uh, member of our congregation so shouting about it. Hey, did you know that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization? Uh, at this point, like, I, there's, there's a couple of, so there's the national organization. Black Lives Matter is not a like totalitarian state. They're run by independent chapters. So in most cities, the chapters aren't really connected with the national organization, right? Yes, there's a website and yes, there's three leaders who came up with this hashtag that like drew, truly like got the spirit of what was happening and the movement that was happening. Um, and they, you know, they can be Marxists. I, I'm not, again, I think the common thing is we're not scared of that. That's not particularly scary in any way, um, unless you start like, you know, passing through this, oh no, they're going to destroy my nuclear family and my two kids are at threat, um, which is, I mean, it's, I know, it's all, uh, hearing my, my children's pastor getting attacked over the phone for like, you know, 
boosting a Marxist organization, man, I, I just don't want to have this conversation anymore. We need, we need to uh, move on and uh, not be so scared. And Gerhard, I, can I not, comment on that really, really Gerhard briefly? Gerhard and can, then no, Taylor, I'm, how about that? Let me throw this in first. I'm not saying Taylor is specifically racist, but I am saying the people who are originally spreading this myth are racist. Like that's why they're doing this. They're what, trying what to myth? That Black Lives Matter is this evil Marxist organization that's come to try, okay. try to take your family and all your toothbrushes. Like this is- That really escalated quickly to the toothbrushes. Okay. Yeah, that's what they always say about socialists is we're coming to take your toothbrush. Uh, yeah, no, this is, I mean, this, I'm not saying that the people who are here in this group saying it are personally racist, but it is a racist talking point in order to deflect from police brutality and the crimes that police commit against black people. This is okay, more important, Taylor, this is more important see... than the question we're discussing. This is yeah. a specific issue that we're dealing with right now. And saying that Black Lives Matter uh, groups can be written off because they're Marxist is turning off our ears to the suffering of the oppressed in our mm. society. How do you feel, how do you think God feels about that? Because mm. even, oh, it, even, if it's even if it's true that they are Marxist, which is, what's the problem with that? I'm a Marxist. Is it, are you, like, is it bad if I start an organization? So like, even if they are Marxist, the people who are spreading the, they are a Marxist line are trying to do it in order to get you to stop paying attention to their cries for help. And I think yeah. that should give okay. us pause. Wait, wait, wait. So, I'm gonna uh, let I've, I've... Taylor go. Go ahead, Taylor. Okay. Uh, well, there, there's a lot to respond to there, but uh, first of all, um, you know, I, I, I didn't say that they were evil. Uh, obviously, you can tell from the positions that I've taken tonight that I think Marxism is a bad idea. That is completely separate from saying that the people that are Marxist are evil. Now, the reason that it's important that Black Lives Matters is a Marxist movement is because that is not how they sell themselves. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have it on good authority that if you say to me, Black Lives Matter, and I say, yes, but, and then anything else, I am, as you have pointed out, um, if not racist, using racist talking points uh, to ignore people that are suffering. And right. that is not a, a way to increase knowledge, uh, first of all. And, and I, mean, how, I mean, how about we talk about black people's living before we talk about increasing a theoretical knowledge? No, because, about because see, you're, you're asking me to defend an argument that I haven't made. I think it's important that they are a Marxist movement because they are not forthright about what their political objectives are. They marshal their support in support of Marxism, right? Uh, so, you know, all you have to do is- Wait, where's, this where's the evidence? Hang on, hang on. I, I've, I, I promise, you know, we'll, we'll get a chance to dialogue on this if, if, if there's time um, and we can follow up on it later, love to. Uh, but in answer to that, just take a look at where the money goes and, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but yeah, when, they, when, when they purport to be uh, this kind of nonpartisan, this, I mean, just truism that Black Lives Matters, I mean, it's so obviously true. How could anybody who's sane disagree with that? Uh, but really, uh, what they marshal their support uh, to certain political ideologies that, that far fewer people agree with. I think that that is a subversive tactic. And so that's why I think it matters. And then, what are they trying to do, though, specifically? What are they trying to So you're saying they're marshalling these uh, forces for political ends. What are those political ends? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know if we want to go down this rabbit hole. I do. But, I do. This is the most important thing we've talked but, about tonight because black people are being killed in this country right now. Yeah, uh, yes, uh, they, they are. And, and I think that everyone on the panel agrees that uh, it's, it's a terrible tragedy when that happens. I would disagree. And again, this is a rabbit hole issue that, uh, that 
that police are hunting black people. I, I don't think that that is a statistical reality. I do think that there are ways that we can improve uh, the relationship between minority groups and specifically uh, low income groups, uh, uh, their relationship with police officers. I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. I'm ready to come to the table and talk about that. Uh, I want that as a human being. I, I certainly want that as a Christian. And something else that, that I just have to respond to, uh, the idea that because I'm trying to be honest about uh, the, this, the, the leaders of this movement means that I somehow am trying to divert attention away from people that are suffering is a blatant, blatant falsehood. And it's a misconception that so many people have of folks like myself that it really is hurtful. Because let me, let me, let me you, let... are out there uh, offering to provide PPE, offering to provide water, uh, offering to do anything that we could uh, to support the protesters. And, and as this thing has raged on, we have continued to support peaceful protesters. But if we draw any attention at all to the, to the troublemakers, then all of a sudden we have lost our purchase as, uh, you know, to have any kind of an argument. And we get Okay, Taylor, I have to cut you off. I'm so sorry, friend. Okay. Let me do this. I want to let either Gerhard or Amy respond to this. And I am going to move us on to a new question, not because this is not important, but because there's so much more to talk about when it comes to socialism, free markets, what Jesus would have wanted, what the Bible tells us. So Gerhard or Amy, one of you can... Oh, and let me say one more thing to the people that are commenting, not only in the chat box, but to me personally. Um... Anytime that somebody on here disagrees with you does not make them a racist or evil. This is a really thoughtful group of panelists that I am so excited to have on here. I think they're all smart. I think they all love the Lord. So let's just keep that in mind. Uh, and can I, can I, this is not, this is not an extra point. I just want to say, uh, I do want to be clear that when I said, no, I am not accusing of anyone in this group of saying a racist thing. I am accusing people in this group of using a talking point that is designed sure, by no, racists. We got the distinction. Amy, well, why don't you say like one quick sentence, then we're going to move on. Again, okay. Um, I just wanted to say historically, um, it actually is a long argument. There is a long history. If you go back to the civil rights movement in like the 20s and the 60s, you'll see the exact same thing. And there is... <sighs> There is sometimes, and also you get it in anti-Semitism in American history as well, um, because uh, Jewish people were living underneath uh, the czar and he was persecuting them with the pogroms. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, that's that thing. Um, and so there were Jewish people who, who played with communistic ideas because it was a way to counter the czar. And I think if you look in American history as well, a lot of uh, civil rights leaders will, will, will look at, will play with, in fact, uh, black, uh, the Black Panthers were actually invited to an embassy uh, in a, um, to, to have their own separate embassy, uh, declaring their kind of freedom at a, um, in a communist country because of this idea of they are unable to be successful in the capitalist world we have set up. And that is actually what we're really supposed to be talking about is about capitalism and, and socialism and how the, the free market isn't always that free. Okay, well, that's a perfect segue then to our next question. Wow, it's like I gave her a script by text, which I didn't. But the next question is, woo, would Jesus support a socialist reform of the, quote, free market capitalism right now? Would Jesus support a socialist reform of the free market capitalism right now? And let me say, when we say things like, would I didn't write this question, but when people say things, would Jesus do such and such? They're also saying like, when we take what we know from the Bible, how do we then apply that to these questions, right? So uh, is there a socialist reform that needs to happen of the free market capitalism? I mean, obviously that's actually my biggest beef here is that 
Um, I believe that we've we've kind of let the quote unquote free market, especially since Reagan's era, um, kind of go so wild that uh, there's um, a growing income disparity uh, in the United States. And um, a lot of people have made a lot of money, but uh, that, that money is uh, centered at the top. Um, I have actual statistics on my computer, but I'm not gonna toggle over there. Um, and so, and, and the people, if you look at like the, just the difference from the 1970s to today, people like teachers, like firefighters, like even cops are, are making, they're kind of keeping rate with inflation, but they are not keeping rate with how corporations have inflated their upper level management. I mean, even highly skilled jobs like engineers and whatever. And there's this idea that, and this is really what I consider capitalism, is this kind of allowing the market to set people's value and their worth and just being like, oh, well, yes, you need to have a better job that, that pays more and we go to back to college. Um, I think that we are getting an incredibly intense uh, disparity and what you're gonna see in America as that disparity grows between the wealth and the poor is you are gonna get more and more radicalization um, from the poor side. This is what you had going into the progressive era. When workers were paid well, workers will rise up. Workers will fight back. Workers will advocate to their government to start actually putting some regulations on trading, keeping from stock buybacks and other kind of insider trading type tactics that they find loopholes to do that concentrate the wealth on the top. We have a severe problem with that right now. And when you can't, when you can't get treated for being sick, you know, because you have a job that you work very, very hard all day long, but it just doesn't pay enough. I think we absolutely that, that Jesus would see the pain and suffering in America and be like, guys, why did you buy in so deeply into capitalism and believe that they were taking your freedom when all they all they wanted to do was have, you know, take care of people? I have a quick just thought, and I'd love to hear Amy. I would agree with most of what I think you just said. I think as Christians... Uh, we should be rightly pricked on both sides, offended at the perils you described of the abuses of free market cal, all that entails. Jesus is angrier than any one of us here mm -hmm. um, and desires like a across the scriptures, there is uniform testimony that the orphan and the widow and the oppressed are uniquely cared for and appreciated by God throughout old and new Testament. Mm -hmm. That's clear. Like no one's arguing that position. I think, what what I see the struggle that that we are having is 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 the state the authorized means for that to accomplish everywhere across the board in every culture, yeah. or does it work better in some cultures better than others? I mean, that's I think that's kind of what's interesting. Like some of what you ha have alluded to, Amy, even there is probably true in a lot of Western European socialist Christian democratic context. Would that immediately translate into the U.S.? I'm not sure. Let me, uh, let me throw another, this is not to get you guys off of this question. It's just because it's related and I want to get as many people's questions in as I can. This question piggybacks on the other one and it says, would Jesus, oh my gosh, it copied and pasted the wrong one. What is the role of government and individuals in taking care of the poor? So yeah. let's add that to the current question that we're on. Um, well, so um, I, I, I was going to say, um, a lot of the same things that that you said there and and that's it you know amy i i don't think that um um a lot of your perspective is controversial there i mean i i agree i think that um materialism is not a good unto itself 
Um, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say what Jesus would or would support as far as a political system goes. I would just make the general statement that I, I do think that God values our freedom very much. Um, and I, I say that because he set us up as, as free creatures, all right, uh, to, to choose to accept him or reject him. And um, whatever implications that might have for our political system or not, uh, I, I would just say that uh, the, the less that we have power to abuse one another, probably the, the better we're going to uh, be as a society. I think I, I have issues with the, I'm oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, Gerhard raised his hand. Sorry, I'm just trying to be like a school teacher here. Oh, Amy, you can go if you. Oh. I have issues with the way, particularly since the 1980s, America, American Christians have identified so severely with Reagan's message and so severely um, with this, you know, if, if people out in the world are un, unaware. Um, in the 1970s, our economy bogged down super. It is a lot of complicated. It has to do with uh, after World War II, countries are starting to like recuperate and stuff. And so kind of a way to take pressure off of companies, uh, uh, Reagan lowers taxes uh, for companies and rich individuals, um, and then everyone really for a while. Uh, he ends up raising them in the second term. But um, anyway, in order to, and he, he passes a lot of regulations that make it easier for businesses to survive. Um, so one of the things that he did was he's, he talked about government is not the solution. And he particularly loves the vocabulary of welfare queens and young bucks. That is his common uh, vocabulary. If you look at the if you look at the timeline of American civil rights movement, our schools were not integrated by 1969, 1970. Jerry Falwell, famous Christian, only integrated his church as of 1969. So that means less than 10 years later, after we finally have become colorblind and we're theoretically giving African Americans a chance to um, go to the same universities, compete for the same jobs, theoretically from this colorblindness. Less than a decade later, Ronald Reagan, the vocabulary he uses is these, these welfare queens and young bucks are taking your money. And my grandfather who lived on social security for a third of his life and millions of dollars of Medicare, till his dying breath, he's like, they're taking my money, Amy. They're taking my money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because he was convinced this, this, this narrative that the government was gonna take his money and give it to the urban poor, when the reality is he would be a recipient and he was a recipient of that money. But there is an association of Christianity with a small government because, because otherwise we're going to enable lazy people. But if you look at that longer history, damn, we were only out of overt segregation for less than 10 years before that vocabulary started. Let me, I see so a lot of faces and people wanting to talk. Taylor, were you the one that just said something? I, yes, I was. Okay. Somebody, but I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. really quick. I, I mean, we, yeah, I've, I've kind of laid out what I think about this. I would just say that uh, I, I think that the idea that we believe in small government, uh, some Christians, that is, I count myself among them, uh, because we want to hold down the poor or don't want uh, to subsidize the poor, uh, things like that. Uh, that is a severe misunderstanding of the position. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. We think that the private sector accomplishes things much better than the government does. Uh, but that is not to say that we're indifferent uh, to, to the problems in our society. Okay, Gerhard. You're on mute. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, I mean, no one's saying uh, that Taylor wants, uh, li he's a libertarian because he hates the poor, but I am saying that your political system, whatever you want it to do, is the most destructive thing possible for the poor. Like, I, I, I mean, you probably do personally want the poor to be well, but I'm saying the belief that you're proposing right now is, would, I've I mean, lifted more people out of poverty than any other idea in history. No, no, no. Hold on. Okay, okay, hold on. What does that mean? Give me data. I want data. Yeah. Because so, that's just a fanciful claim. Yeah. Okay. So one one example of this would be Tom's, right? Tom's shoes, right? Instead of actually uh, just importing the goods or you know making them uh, cheaply in in China or whatever, uh, they actually built their business in Africa to employ people. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you've seen there is that as people have not just been employed and given uh, a, a livelihood, but been given uh, dignity and value and, and, and a sense of purpose, uh, that society is tremendously better off than it was before. There's another example uh, of guy, a Baylor alumni, I uh, can't think of his name at the moment, but you'd be able to find it if you Googled it. Uh, he uh, started a business where he would build these extremely low cost prefab homes in Africa, not just to meet a need, but because once he got it started there, he could leave and the business would run itself. And so he left this uh, place with a, with a thriving profitable business. And now these villages who have been airdropped food and had money thrown at them for decades and had been no better off because all that money went to the gangs and you know, all the other problems that they have in Africa. But uh, when they started these businesses there, all of a sudden you see commerce and you see uh, uh, people um, having, having a dispensable, disposable income and uh, the, the quality of life is tremendously improved. And, and I think that you can see that on a macro scale uh, if you just uh, kind of look at America's influence around the world economically. Let me bump, yeah. let me let me get in here Can for a second. Evan is going to go next, but somebody just texted me and said Taylor is referencing the book Good Intentions. He said we had to read it at Baylor. I don't know this person, but anyway, I'm going to let Evan. It could be true, but I haven't read it. Okay, I'm going to let Evan go. And then if somebody that hasn't talked in a while, like Brune or Mark, if you want to talk to this idea of the role of government to help the poor, great. And then I want to squeeze in one or two more questions before we're done. So Evan, go. Earhart, do you have a car? Yeah. What kind of car is it? Uh -oh. It's Ford. This feels like, like a trap. <laughs> Not a trap. Do you like it? It's all right. I haven't driven oh. in a couple months. How long did you have to wait for it? Not very. We had a wonderful guest on our podcast the other day. Hadn't been published yet. Yeah. Barbara Taylor, who is on the east side. Barbara Elliott. The, Barbara Elliott, thank you. Yeah. Of, um, of, the, um, of the Berlin Wall in the mid-80s. And the average wait for an automobile in the USSR was, do you know how long, Gerhard? I don't. I guess. 13 years. So nice. if you like your Ford and you're, I don't know when you could start driving, 31 or so, uh, you should be very thankful. So people, I mean, it's just, it's, it's honestly kind of an absurd question. I mean, the, 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 the story of history is actually very clear. Um, you, you know, the, the idea that uh, an automobile is available to almost every person in America today, uh, whereas in the USSR, there was a 13-year wait for a piece of crap that hardly ran. It, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, there's really no comparison. So anyway, I hope you like your Ford. Wait wait wait, 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 wait. This was specifically Does... directed to me though. Okay. Let's be honest. Like I need to answer this. Okay. So let me tell, let me ask you a question, Evan. Do you like your car? Oh, love my car. Okay. Uh, In fact, I love all three of my cars. 
Would you rather have another car or double infant mortality rate? Uh, Would you rather is, have another? That is such a logical fallacy. It doesn't bear. Uh, it, well, it, it does not bear repeating. So, and, and okay. Well, all these well hold on. Infant mortality. Let's talk about China. How, how many children are the Chinese allowed to have in your beloved communist country? Who said I loved? Con who, who said I love China? I didn't. You say said anything. you were. A, you said you were a communist. I am coming. Okay. I love China. How many Mama Bear is going to step in here just for a second. Can, Not because can I make mortality is very hold, hold high. On, hold on, hold on, hold on. So I'm pulling the MC card and I will mute you if I have to. Not because it's not fascinating, but because we only have 15 minutes left and there are a lot of people wanting to get their question in. Hey, listen, maybe we can have like an after hours thing where Gerhard and Evan just go at each other and those who want to stick around for the bloodbath can. But for now, I do want to move us on not because we answered the last question, but just so we can get some more kind of perspectives in on the same issue, right? Whew, okay. Um, I should get paid extra for tonight. Okay, these are two questions that basically say the same thing, but from different uh, angles. So I'm just gonna ask them both because I'm trying to get as many voices as we can in. One says, does capitalism encourage, lead to, or rely on consumerism? And is consumerism a serious issue in the life of the church and individual Christians? The second question says, respond to the comment that capitalism perpetuates selfishness. Like, how can a Christian really live out Jesus' teaching to the rich young ruler or about the widow who gave all her money when they have to focus and work so hard on building a life for themselves? So really the, the base of the, these questions is, does capitalism breed consumerism and selfishness since we've, give, we've given the socialists a hard time, so we're going to give the capitalists a hard time? Who wants to go? Well, I'm not afraid of the question. I mean, uh, yes, it can. Uh, but that's why I think that social fabric is so important. That's why I think that we as the church should not see ground culturally. I don't think that we should uh, keep our uh, spiritual beliefs to ourselves. I don't think that we should sit at home uh, and, and talk about meaningful spiritual things. But then when we go to the office, sanitize our speech. I don't think that the church should stay within the walls. I think anywhere that there is suffering anywhere in the world, there should be these weird little people called Christians doing whatever they can to help. And uh, for the longest time, that's what you saw. And you still do see that uh, to a, a large extent, but uh, I think we could be an awful lot better. Uh, but again, I, I just want to get at what maybe is an assumption behind the question, and that's that socialism doesn't breed, breed greed. And it most certainly does, uh, because socialism, mm -hmm. look, you just exchange the, the prospect of personal, personal wealth creation, uh, you, you get rid of that, and then the only currency left is power. But people are still greedy. Yeah, if you abolish money, you don't get rid of greed. And so that's, that, that would be my response. I see Gerhard and Amy chomping. So Gerhard first, then Amy, because I saw you first. And then Mark. Oh, I mean, all three like, in a row. These are just theoretical intellectual discussions we're having. 12 to 15%, like there is a 12 to 15% higher nutrition intake in socialist countries than capitalist ones. There is a, there is half the infant mortality. There is four times less child mortality. There is an Gerhard, extra life. Can you life say what socialist nations you're referring yeah, you to? Because I know everyone's like, what about Venezuela? Too. Yeah. Can we post uh, this? So actually, uh, yeah, sure. I'll uh, put the, I have, I share this study so much. I'll just put the link to it in the chat, which I'm sure will roll on like a flood. Uh, can I share in, uh, I'm, I'm well, sorry. Wait, wait, wait. So we said That's it was going to be Gerhard, Amy, then Mark. Yeah. We got, we got three, three to the left of you. I thought you. he was looking for something. I was going to share an anecdote while he was looking. 
Oh, no, sorry. Uh, sorry, I got distracted on. Well, the uh, reason I ask Gerhard is because we've got several questions coming in about like, what about Venezuela, right? People always want to say, mm -hmm. or what about uh, the countries where it hasn't worked well? Mm -hmm. And then you're saying, oh, they're so much better fed. People are like, what? So that's why I wanted you to clarify. Yeah, there's an interesting, if you look at the timeline of when Venezuela's economy went down, it's strikingly similar to when the U.S. started imposing economic sanctions on Venezuela and therefore their oil industry went down, that's which was their main export industry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm looking at all of That's the flowing true. in questions. So I was half listening. I mean, the Venezuelan economy is mostly based on oil exports. And so when the U.S. slapped, uh, uh, sorry, I just said the word a second ago, but it's escaping. Sanctions. Me uh, sanctions on their oil industry, then of course their economy went down. I don't see why we have to speculate further. All right, Amy. I will say the capitalism and myself included, I'm in the system here with you, um, encourages um, consumerism. I mean, especially with this COVID thing that should really, you know, like, I'm like, I'm supporting local businesses. I'm eating out when I could just, you know, make, you know, a sandwich at home, but I'm eating out because I need to support these people. And that's, that is kind of the, the beast of a, a, a capitalist society. And when you look at the history there is no major time in capitalist history where you don't see like this Tom story is great, but it relies on individuals doing things like fair trade, things that are like the micro micro loans. I think micro loans are great. You and I would probably agree on that. Like, but it, it relies on kind of the good heart of largely companies. But the reality is Not companies like companies like less uh, Nestle, they got slammed for child labor multiple times or child labor and child slavery in the 1990s. And for immoral practices of selling their, their infant mortality um, incorrectly for, I'm not gonna explain all the, all the ways, uh, but their infant formula, sorry, to babies in Latin America, knowing they were more likely to die from that. There are numerous companies in America. I mean, God, read about Bhopal and the, uh, the Dow chemical spill that killed more people than Chernobyl. Like there, the, this idea to maximize profits, unfortunately has a lot of people cutting corners in a lot of different ways, both for their workers and by falsifying, making their product not as good. And uh, I think that we desperately need a check against, against these corporations. And to me, there are three major nodes of power in the modern world, private corporations and enterprise, right? The power there, the power of governments and the people, the power to either strike, riot or vote, right? And that's, that's the only way that we can ensure we have good inspection so we don't have all of this exploitation. Because Evan, you want to know why you get your car so quickly? Largely because of things that were taken from other countries in unethical ways. And also not every American, other Americans have waited way more than 13 years to, to get a car. Okay, I want to, Mark ceded his time in a sense to Taylor. So it's going to go Taylor and then Mark. And that is ha happening. Okay. Okay. Taylor. So uh, the the first thing I wanted to say about that is there's a little bit of a misunderstanding um, uh, about capitalism generally. Uh, it's not the good heart necessarily of these organizations, although some you know people at the top of organizations do have good hearts, no doubt. But uh, that's not why typically they make people's lives better. Uh, Henry Ford, by all accounts, was not. A particularly good person. He was a vicious anti-Semite, actually, but he made people's lives better because that is how he enriched himself by finding a need and meeting it, finding a, a you know a, some a, an invention, a product that was going to make everybody's lives better. 
uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about this right now on, on Zoom. Uh, they, the programmers didn't do this uh, because they wanted us to be able to have this conversation. They, they, they did it because of the prospect of personal gain. And so that's what drives innovation. Uh, and then Amy said something else, and I, and I really wanted to, to answer it. But now that some time has passed, I've forgotten what it was. Well, that's okay, because Mark is ready to go. So, okay. And you get the podcast later, so you know. So okay. this one came up in a, in a, in a um, Facebook thing earlier that, you know, okay, capitalism harnesses people's self-interest and greed. Like it's it, it founded on that to be able to do good things. I mean, I know I my, my wife's coffee shop, right? Uh, if we have choices of what coffee to use, what chocolate to use, what sugar to use. If we used, you know, just market and economic forces, we don't know that the coffee and the sugar and the chocolate that we get would be coming to us ethically. As an organization that's um, fighting human trafficking, it's very important, that's true. So we have to make choices that are inefficient, that are against our self-interest in terms of making profit to ensure that we are checking our supply chain. And to do that as a nonprofit, we need some donations. That's, that's, how, we, that's how we keep going. Um, and the Bible is very, very clear on like greed not being a good thing. So yeah, maybe there's a magical system that harnesses greed for people's good. But Jesus says to the rich young ruler, you have to sell everything. And in Luke, he commands it to believers. It's not like a single example. Um, you can't serve two gods, two, two gods, you know, God and money. Um, it, there's, there's not, it's not, capitalism isn't harnessing just human nature. There are spiritual forces here um, in consumerism, in um, all these things. If we just seek our self-interest as Christians in the marketplace, uh, then we will perpetuate systems that are beyond our control and that are evil. Okay. Oh, I'm going to yeah. jump so in here for a second because we are, I cannot believe we're close to being out of time. Man, this flu. We may have to do some kind of, Evan and I will talk. We might do something on the podcast to, to follow this up. But a um, couple clarifying questions. Amy, a couple people have asked, you said you weren't a socialist. Can you tell us what your political position is if you have one? You don't have to, if you don't want to. Okay, I don't know what, how to read that face. Does that mean you wanna t plead the fifth? No, I'm, I'm fine. I, I jokingly to Mark and Gerhard call myself the Joe Biden of the conversation. So it, it's, not, it's not really useful. I mean, I'm for, I, I, am, I think Elizabeth Warren would capture um, most of the things that I would enjoy uh, the most, particularly how she goes after um, corporate interest and looking at um, stocks and all that kind of stuff to to keep things like um, money when it's coming back into the United States from going back into stock prices and things like that. So like those tend to be the, the places where I think reform is most important, um, capping things like CEO um CEO, you know, prices, because we've got these companies that are suffering. They're like, well, we'll have to go under if we don't pay our workers more. And yet the CEO price has gone up 937%, only salary, not including stock options since 1970. Oh, and 19, so familiar. 19 no, I'm kidding. I, I do have to cut you off just yeah, because we yeah. only have five minutes left. Woo, so, and you guys are, you like to talk and you all have really good things to say, but here's how I want to close our evening out. And I'm going to really rely on you each to just go a minute or less. I know it's hard, um, but here's what we're going to do. As we close the evening out, I think everybody on this thread and everybody watching can probably agree that things are far from perfect, regardless of where you stand. And everybody on this panel is a proclaims, I mean, professes Christ is a Christian. So what would you say in your final thoughts is maybe like one thing 
that we can actually do. I mean, yeah, well, I'll, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I thought I was the only one unmuted. So I was like, oh, I guess I'll to start. glorify God in this. Did I freeze? I totally oh, froze. Yeah, oh, you froze. Okay. Yeah. What, so what is one thing we can do to glorify God? Yeah. So what is one thing as Christians that we can do, given what you believe about all of this, to make the world a little bit better? And it could be something about the way we vote. It could be something about the way we act, the way we think, the way we have a conversation, whatever. But um, let's just take the gospel and apply it to one thing. I'm going to just ask you all to say that. And then we are going to close out. We'll talk later about how we can maybe keep this conversation going later because people are like viciously asking me more questions. Is there somebody that wants to start? Oh, I'll start. Okay. I think if we are truly Christians and we truly take the over 300 times God tells us to take care of the poor, the widows and the orphans seriously, I think that really means like, I mean, sure, it would be great if we had better state apparatuses that didn't just, you know, make life easy for the rich. But um but what we can do is give radically, give sacrificially, um, give of our time, give of our space um, to radically, you know, like, don't just ask, hey, is, is this a good, is this a, is this a good school district for my kid? Ask, why can't somebody else move to a better school district? And how can we make the school district better? So um, thinking always communally as Christians, I think that we are called to that. So absolutely whether you're a capitalist or a socialist, you can give sacrificially and without vetting people, give to food banks. Stop vetting people. Jesus ate with the prostitutes and all of the sinners. Stop making people have to drug test to get any kind of compassion from you. You don't know their life. Okay. Woo. Who wants to go next? um, I I can go next. Um, I think that kind of my final thought would be that our responsibility to one another doesn't change because of political circumstances. It's not relevant whether or not we agree on some of these political questions. God says to us, be holy as I am holy. That's our responsibility, right? He doesn't say be holy if you get your way, be holy if your party wins an election, uh, be holy if your neighbors are holy. It, it's way simpler than all of that. He, he says that we're just called to be holy. And it can be hard to discern what that looks like in every situation. That's why we're having this discussion but it always involves loving each other. Um, you know, I think we should be involved politically, but that we should hold the results of political uh, elections loosely, and that we should trust God with the results, knowing that no matter who becomes president, Jesus Christ is our king. Who's next? We got to wrap this up quickly, but I know you have things to say. Uh, I, yeah, I'll go. Um... I, I think I want to piggyback on it, what Amy said about um, taking care of the poor. There's this idea that, okay, the state didn't take care of the poor, that's the church's role. The church is not doing it. If, if anyone is looking for the church to do it, you can't see the church doing it right now. And I'd love for us to step up. I think that'll take us um, changing the way we look at money and changing the way that we look at our resources and embracing ourselves as a body. And so not being so scared of socialism and Marxism that we're spending more time trying to fight those as forces in our um, churches than we are trying to help the poor. So don't be so scared of Marxism and love the poor. All right, Gerhard, Evan, we're holding Bryn for last because he's going to pray. Uh, oh, I'll go then. So we have a left, right, left, right thing. Um, there are uh, many charities, CCSC, Christian Community Service Center is one, for example, that has uh, work programs and it teaches people a trade, a skill uh, that they can employ and that they can be self-sufficient. 
and have dignity in their value, which is, I think, again, God created us to work. I think we were made to work. And rather than just a handout, so to speak, just a handout, um, it treat, teaches them a trade that they can better their lives with. So that one thing you could do would be to support organizations that teaches people how to make money. All right, Gerhard? Uh, yeah, um, I think I my closing thought would be that this is ultimately politics. Um, and we need to be clear about what exactly we're talking about when we talk about politics. Uh, we are not necessarily talking about religion, even though our religion should impinge on our politics and the Bible should impinge on our politics and our Christianity should impinge on our politics. But we do have to remember at the end of the day, that this is a political discussion. Um, and it's an important discussion. Like I said earlier, like uh, black people are being murdered by cops. And that's one of the most important discussions that we could possibly have. Um, but we do need to remember that uh, these are political discussions. And so nothing is outside of the realm of uh, Christianity unless it contradicts Christianity's moral principles. Um, and Christianity's moral principles do not say, uh, do not command us to set up a system in which wealth can be centralized. And they don't set up, uh, command us to set up a system in which the state owns the means of production. They, it is scripture and it is read in multiple ways. And if we're gonna think honestly and rationally and seriously about politics, we have to talk about politics itself and not just how our theology might theoretically impinge on the ideas related to our politics. All right, I'll say one more thing and uh, one quick housekeeping thing and I'm gonna let Brun say his piece and pray us out. Um, Quick housekeeping thing is that our next Theology on Tap, which is just to ask us anything, I have a feeling we're going to get some leftover questions from this one, uh, is September 15th. So mark your calendar, September 15th for the next Theology on Tap. And it'll just be our leadership team answering any question that you lob at us. Um, we have some really fun podcasts coming your way. Um, and so keep tuning in if you haven't already. Theology on Air, you can search for that wherever you listen to podcasts. But of course, you can also find all that information on the YouTube page or the Facebook page. If you want to follow up with any of the people here, um, you can contact me at this number and I will connect you to them or you can uh, stalk us on Theology on Tap Houston's Facebook page. And then it's just my answer, I haven't answered any of the rest of these questions, but I will say this. I think everybody here would recognize that this world is really broken, that people are broken um, and that we are in need of fixing and a savior. And the really good news is that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a socialist or a Marxist or libertarian or a distributist, which I just learned that term two seconds ago, um, Jesus wants you to say yes to him and follow him. And that is really yeah. one of the big things that Theology on Tap wants you to know that Jesus loves you and that he is asking for you to say yes to him and to the sacrifice he made on the cross so that you could be restored with God and live with him forever in a world where we won't have to have these conversations one day because everything will be just and everything will be put to right. If you want to talk more about that, that's the thing I'm the most excited about. You can call me, you can text me, you can email me um, and let's talk some more about that. Brune, will you close us out? That was great. Yeah, I think I... Uh, put this in the chat, which has been erased in a flood, but I, I love the definition of righteousness as uh, those who are willing to disenfranchise their wealth and resources on behalf of those who are weaker and needy. That mm. is ultimately what Jesus did for us, for everyone here, uh, whether you're aware of that or not. He, has, he had the most wealth to spare and gave it without hesitation. Uh, he knows no scarcity. And um, 
yeah, I would just echo what Sarah said. Ultimately, we want you to care more about allegiance and fidelity and sacrificial risky cost of following him more than you care about any political party or system, period. And I think scripture is clear on that. Um, but grateful for all you. One of the things that we always talk about is the ability to love one another in these discussions actually uh, supernaturally proves Jesus's sonship. That's what he said in John 17. So thank you guys for participating, albeit virtually and cut up in these arbitrary boxes through Zoom. Thank you guys for coming and participating. We really value these conversations because none of us has the corner on the market of knowledge and wisdom and we need each other desperately. So thank you guys. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we, we bow our knee ultimately not to a flag or to an ideology or to a system, uh, but to you, you will come and make all things right. You will honor the groanings deep in us that want justice and want um, the, the blood of the innocents that cry out for you, that you will make right one day. You will uh, give back vengeance. You've said that. We can wait patiently and work hard and in earnest, knowing that you will pay back in earnest. And everyone here will give an account ultimately to you for what we have done with our time, talent, and resources to make earth look more like your heaven and your utopia. Give us the wisdom we need, Jesus. Give us the love for one another in this time and heal us where we're broken. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you on September 15th.